Hello? Are we on the air? Welcome to the Beyond the Mind podcast, where we ask not what's in your head, but what your head is in. Prepare to be inspired. Inspired to change your environment, change your mindset, and ultimately change your life. Willpower doesn't work, people. If you truly want to move away from stress and anxiety, you have to start with your environment. With your environment. So let's go. Let's apply some positive change into your world. Happiness is loading. Is loading. Welcome to the Beyond the Mind podcast. Hello, podcast world. I am your host, Ian Highfield. And before we introduce today's guest, who, I mean, he's only the sports psychologist for the world of golf's number one player. So no big deal right there. But before we introduce him, I'm just going to give you a very, very quick update uh, on the training from last week. Um, Myself and my good friend Jared, uh, we're trying to create positive change by getting people ready for our Sober October Challenge. And the movement is growing. We are up to four regular people now training together on Instagram. And Jared did not, I repeat, Jared did not do the three mile every four hour challenge. I'll say that one more time just for Jared. Jared did not do the challenge. He actually went to the lake wakeboarding and drinking beer. And while he was doing that, I was running three miles every four hours for 48 hours. Um, That's not quite true uh, because I missed one run. Uh, where I just completely slept in, the second 4am run. Uh, And I did not do the final run uh, because I decided to finish early because my left calf was in absolute agony and I ate a ton of pizza instead. So, guys, I failed the challenge, um, but I got 30 miles running in over the weekend. Um, So it's not always about success or failure. It can be about the effort that you put into the task. And I promise you, I left nothing on the table. So um, there's a little update on the fitness challenge. I'll have Jared on the podcast again. And now, without further ado, uh, I want to introduce you to Dr. Brett McCabe. Dr. McCabe has a podcast called The Mindside. Uh, When I first arrived in the USA, it was one of the very first podcasts I listened to. And I was like, wow, this guy's good. He knows what he's talking about. And then lo and behold, uh, I meet him at a few events and I get to know him. uh, And it turns out he is the psychologist, sports psychologist for the Alabama uh, football team. Uh, one of the greatest college football teams of all time. He's a sports psychologist to, I believe, around about nine PGA Tour players. Uh, And he has a phenomenal business where he just helps people progress and get better. He's a coach to many coaches, uh, as well as a psychologist to uh, individual athletes and in team sports. So uh, I want to now send you over to the conversation I had with Dr. Brett McCabe, Uh, on performance, on anxiety, 
and on actually we on to the subject of coming back from injury. So anyone who's coming back from an injury, anyone who suffers anxiety uh, or anyone who just wants to learn more about being better and human performance, check out this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. And don't forget, anyone who wants to connect with me, you can do. You just go to ianhighfield.com. That's ianhighfield.com forward slash calendar and book yourself a free 30-minute power call. So if you like any of the topics that I discuss with Dr. McCabe, uh, please feel free. Go to ianhighfield.com. That's ianhighfield.com forward slash calendar and book a free 30-minute power call with me. Dr. McCabe. How are you, sir? Man, I'm great. So good to be here. And after kind of uh, some hiccups on us trying to get scheduled with our busy schedules, it's good to, to take some time and not be rushed and have a little chat. Hey, man, it's uh, when you're a um, sports psychologist to the number one golfer in the world and you're at the PGA Championships, uh, I, can, I can kind of accept that we're going to have to reschedule from, uh, from time to time. Um, t- tell us a bit about how was the PGA Championships? You, en- you enjoy yourself? How were you guys? It was good. It was uh, it was a beautifully presented tournament by the PGA of America. I mean, I think you know, with all the problems and the bungles that we've historically seen in social media from the USGA, to see a tournament that was put together by the PGA and then run, from what I understand, by the PGA Tour. I mean, look, the PGA Tour runs all the events every single year. Let, let the best of the best run the event and the PGA of America guiding it. And the golf course was beautiful. The, the challenge was great. It required different shots throughout the golf course. It would have been great to see the fans, but there was something special to not see it with fans. And I don't want that to be a continued thing. But the fact that you could see the golf course and its beauty and you could see the parallel fairways and you could – be out walking the course and you could hear shots two and three uh, fairways away. There was an eeriness to it. And it, it was, it made it a little, it gave it a little mystique. Um, and it also gave it a lot of, uh, I would say respect and reverence for the game like that. I thought it was really cool. Awesome. And you had fun out there yourself, like for, for the listeners, um, obviously I, I, when I first came to America, uh, the Mindside podcast was one of the first things that I downloaded and I started listening to, your, to yourself speak. And even before I got to know you personally, I think I reached out and mentioned how cool your podcast was. Uh, and then I started to see more and more about what you do and working in golf, in college sports. So just for the listeners, tell them, you know, why were you at the PGA Championships and then what it is that you generally do with uh, athletes and, and some of the world's top performers in, in their sporting field? Yeah, so I'm a clinical psychologist and also specialize in sport and performance. Um, and so I get the real cool dual role there of helping players on and off the course to manage the success, the challenges, the struggles, helping them to put together a performance mindset that embodies the entire person. Um, and I've been working with players on the PGA Tour for probably, let's see, 10 years maybe now. I started with my first PGA Tour uh, client was uh, a guy by the name of Graham McDowell at the PGA Championship in Atlanta at Atlanta Athletic Club. Um, I had been working with some players that were kind of mini tours and college players before that, but um, he kind of gave me my break on the PGA Tour. And then, um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to go out there for 10 years and, and going out there is unique. I mean, I would say most of my work is done away from the golf course or at home with my players, you know, just remotely training. Um, 
and I work within the team dynamic. As a psychologist, I'm a what we call a behavioral medicine psychologist, which is I was always embedded in teams. I would always work with the physicians, the surgeons, the physical therapists, the you know the occupational therapists, and I always work in that setting. So when I'm working within a team dynamic, I'm doing much the same way. I may be working with the swing coach as much as I am with the player. I may be working with the stats guy or the nutritionist or the body movement person um, while we're out walking the fairways. And so um, every player is different. Some players need more when I'm out on tour. I'm hoping that by the time they get there, we're just tightening the last screw or two. Um, you know, I don't really like to do crisis management out there or overcoach. I mean, one of my biggest fears is that I, I never want to be the person who overcoaches. So I, I try to nudge if, if people were to watch me work out there. I don't know if it's right, wrong, or indifferent, but I may walk nine holes over practice round and may talk about the psychology of performance for 15 or 20 minutes max. You know, we're just talking, finding out where they are, working within the team, letting the players do their job. Um, you know, pre-COVID, I would go to breakfast or dinner with my players. Now we're, you know, I may ride in with them. Um, and, and then when they get there, just stand with them on the range. You know, I do a lot of standing and watching, but I'm observing. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it, I kind of use some of the experiences of working in other sports and having played other sports, having played baseball growing up as a pitcher. Pitchers are very similar to golfers. So I don't want to, you know, I didn't want to come into the, out of the bullpen before I went into a game and have somebody rah-rah me up or give me a lot of information. Um, and so I, I like the player just to take care of their business and I try not to do much because if I'm not there every day, then they need to do their thing every day and I don't need to be adding to it. So a lot of times when I'm on tour, I'm just, you know, maybe just tightening a few things here or there, helping them process information. Um, you know, I'll be up at four o'clock in the morning, riding in with one and coming home at seven o'clock at night with another and, uh, you know, whatever they need and hell, they may not think I'm very valuable out there, but I keep going out there. So they haven't kicked me out yet. So. Awesome. And, um, doc, you know, you, you can, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're also very successful, uh, in other sports. So I'd love to hear a little bit, and, and this is for me personally. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about, uh, what it is you do with Alabama football. That would be awesome. So, you know, I, I know a lot about your golf. I've, I've listened to your podcast. I've tracked your, your career. Um, I've spoken to you at events. Um, but I don't quite know as much about what you do um, with these elite-level college football teams. And obviously, Alabama and Nick Saban, uh, what goes on there is, is phenomenal. So I'd love to hear a little bit more uh, about that, if, if that's possible. You know, I think... So let me say this. I've been fortunate enough to work at Alabama for seven years, and I was brought in by the basketball coach at the time, a guy by the name of Anthony Grant, who is now the um, head basketball coach at Dayton and was the national coach of the year this year. Probably would have won the national title if COVID hadn't destroyed it. Um, and um, I, the athletic training and sports medicine department came to me and said, um, hey, look, we're looking for somebody to work in other sports. You know, we already have our football program all set up. Coach Saban has always been very involved in the mental side. He's got his group. And I'm like, hey, look, that is completely cool to me. I don't, I don't do it for the, you know, the rah-rah. I do it because I just want to serve the clients I serve and whoever they are, it doesn't matter. And at that time, I had done some work for Auburn. I had done some work for Ole Miss. I had done some work for other schools around the Southeast. And I really liked what Alabama had in place. I liked the way that they treated their athletes. I like the way that their mental health and their behavioral medicine and their sports psychology was a primary function of their humanistic development of their athletes. 
Um, it's led by um, Dr. Uh, Gilmore, uh, Ginger Gilmore Childress and then Jeff Allen, who is the associate AD in charge of sports medicine. He's probably the finest athletic trainer I've ever been around. Ginger's in charge of the behavioral medicine and she just really, really lives it in a very high way. Um, and, and so she, she kind of laid it out for me and said, look, we've got football squared away. And I said, that's awesome. You know, I don't care. You know, I went to LSU, like helping out the football team is not, <laughs> not my goal. Right. But over the time, what happened was I'd be in there and they would say, Hey, look, can you see a kid? Can you see this kid? Hey, can you see this kicker? Can you see? And you know, we'd share ideas. And then all of a sudden I started seeing them and they didn't let anyone know in the football team, except for the trainers that I was working with some of the players because they have a very structured system. And then I started working with a player clinically who had some um, pretty significant depression um, that was impacting the way that they competed and played. And at that time I had to write a couple notes and a couple reports in, and it was sent to the, um, the individual that's been with coach Saban from the very beginning. And he's a very prominent psychiatrist and he read it and said, Oh, look, you know, I got on a video call and he said, look, whatever you want to do, you're approved to work with our athletes, you know, the way you conceptualized. And, and I think it's just my training that I was very fortunate to be very well trained. Um, and he said, look, anything you want to do. And then at that point I started helping out the team and then they started bringing me in to speak to the team. And so when I say that I work for Alabama football, let me, let me just say this. Alabama football would win national titles if I was there or somebody else was there. It's because of the visionary leadership and the execution of the man in charge and the team that he has built around him. Nick Saban is one of the, is I'm very fortunate. I played for the greatest college baseball coach of all time. And i work for the greatest football coach of all time, college football coach. Okay. They were very similar. My baseball coach was coach Saban's athletic director at LSU. Wow. So I saw that, that same system or process that they put in place. Details are everything. Don't make it complicated. Out compete everybody, develop your angle, put an extra arrow in your quiver. Okay. It was those same types of thoughts. So working into the Alabama football program, I wasn't trying to, in fact, I'd go over there for three or four years and I wouldn't tell anybody I worked for Alabama until they gave me a ball one day after a national title game that said team sports psychologist. And, and then they gave me a ring and I was like, okay, look, they don't care. And I'd go over there and not even, you know, I wouldn't even take pictures. And now in the social media world, they want you to take pictures while you're over there and highlight the beauty of the, you know, now it's a little bit different, but I would, I would, I handled it in front from such a, I guess I, I respected the department so much that I never wanted it to be about me because it's not. What I specialize in over there is two things. I specialize in injury rehabilitation. So athletes that have tragic and traumatic injuries that have to get back on the field or deal with, with career-threatening injuries. So anybody who's injured of any kind of significant loss, I tend to see, okay, um, and help them get back. And that's just a specialty that I've had since I was early in my training. And, and what got me into psychology was my own injury. Um, but then I also work with athletes that are struggling and who are struggling to communicate with their coach, their position coach, who are struggling to play better, to eliminate some of the mental clutters and rehearsals that they have in their head. Um, there's a cup, there's not just me there. We have a couple of motivational speakers that come in regularly. Um, and so there's, there's a couple fingerprints. And so that's why I never want to take any credit for anything. Um, and I also, but I'm also very quick to say it's an honor to work there. I don't ever want to overstate what I do there. Um, because that program is so well run up and down the system. Uh, that being said, I am the average learner while I'm there. I'm, I'm, I'm investigating and taking every piece of information I can to learn how to be a better psychologist within that team dynamic. And, um, and so I love working over there. I am a, you know, 
I'm very fortunate to work with some great athletes across all sports. I mean, I work with every single sport over there. Some swimmers, gymnasts, uh, long distance runners, sprinters, hurdlers, uh, softball, baseball players, um, basketball, um, you name it, I get to do it rowing. Um, and I love it. And, and what I love about it is I'm working at a university where athletes want to do what it takes to get better. They're looking for the angle. They're looking for the edge. They have a lot of demands in their life, but they come in thirsty and hungry. No athlete that sees me is forced to see me. It's always an agreement with the athlete and 99.9% of the athletes want to be there. What I mean by that is they see that as, look, that's a chance that I have a opportunity to get better. So, and they come. And so I get to communicate with a lot of the coaches, the strength conditioning coaches, the athletic trainers and so on. And I just love that team dynamic all the way through. That's awesome. I, I think the way that you phrased the, the answer, the, you know, about how you fit in um, probably reflects a lot of the qualities um, that Alabama are all about. Was probably one of the reasons that, that you fit in there so well. I love, I love the way you, you phrase that and try and uh, put the credit onto a lot of other people and the, the excellence uh, that's already in there. To build on part of your answer, I'm very interested uh, in the injury recovery. Hmm. Um, not just for my own personal learning, but also um, I, I played college rugby. Um, yeah. And then when I was at university, I had friends who played um, soccer or, or football, as we'd call it, to a higher level. Uh, and I have a few friends now who have been injured. One, one in particular that I'm thinking about that messaged me about my podcast. Uh, and he was injured in an, in an amateur soccer game and really sort of, he can't run anymore. He, he's, he's lost a lot of use of his legs. He was a very, very um, fit guy. He tried to go into coaching. It really didn't sort of float his boat for him. So what I would love to know, Doc, is when these athletes are injured, career-threatening injuries, what is the process that, that you go through? How do you help them? And then for um, any of the listeners that might have suffered an injury or that might not be able to train or do the things that they're used to, how could you break that, uh, that advice down? Maybe not necessarily for an elite athlete, but more sort of someone who's um, a, a professional, a worker, but still struggles because they can't do something that, that, that they love or, or that they're passionate about. So, you know, let me, let me kind of answer it from my perspective first. You know, I, when I was playing at LSU, I emerged and all of a sudden the game was really easy for me as a pitcher. You know, we were the number one team in the country, you know, major leaguers all around us. And here I was dominating the team in a way that I just felt so powerful. And, and all of a sudden I couldn't comb my hair and um, I don't know what it was. They said it was, um, you know, they said it was a um, tendonitis in my shoulder. I probably tore my labrum in my shoulder back then. We really didn't look at it in the early nineties. And, you know, when I tried to come back and throw after being shut down, I, what I did was I anchored. I, I immediately thought I should get back to where I was before. Mm. Okay. And then every time I pitched and threw, knowing that I was protecting against some of the, the pain and the, and the limitations, every time I threw, what happened was people would come to me and say, oh my God, it looks like you're doing this different or you're changing this. And so I became super aware of my mechanics. Pitching is very much like golf in that it's an initiation sport. So, you know, I'm sitting there having to initiate it and thinking and being locked into all the different mechanical thoughts in my head. So 
you know, I really struggled with that. And it wasn't until a year and a half later that I kind of break through, but I never, I never regained what I had before. I became a much better pitcher and had a lot of success, but it was not never the same for me. I didn't throw as hard. I didn't have as much command. I didn't have as much confidence. And I felt like I was winning with smoking, smoking mirrors. So that put me on my list of when I became and decided to become a psychologist, I wanted to study the injury um, relationship and the way that our body and our mind and, and interacts with medical conditions. So I did a lot of training in, in rehabilitation centers, um, orthopedic surgery, ICUs, all that. That was my specialty in the medical psychology interplay. I never really trained in psychiatric facilities. I was 100% trained in medical facilities. And so when I, when I was in grad school, I would talk to the head trainer at, L at LSU and you know, we would talk about some ideas. And, and at that time, they weren't really using psychology because at that time, psychology tended to be like, oh my God, the house is on fire. Go <laughs> see somebody. Okay. It's what strength and conditioning was 30 years ago. Right? Yeah, yeah. Strength and conditioning when I played 30, you know, 25, 30 years ago, we did some pretty novel and innovative stuff, but we were all kind of treated the same. And if you had a bad back, then they'd put you on a program. They wouldn't do a pre-assessment to learn where your risk factors are. Like we see with TPI or on base U or yeah. a lot of the functional movements that you see in the functional movement screens that you see in, in strength and conditioning right now. Um, and so the developmental pathway of that of psychology was something that I wanted to spearhead was to say, you know, it's bullshit for us to have to sit on the sidelines. Okay. Uh, you know, as a psychologist, I'm a, I'm a trained practitioner of understanding how the human body interacts with the mind. And so what I did was I started educating orthopedic surgeons and I started train educating trainers and I started doing more and more research in that and, and publishing and doing some different things in that because I believed in that, I believe the psychologist or the mental health provider or the mental health coach or the, the mind, the mental coach should be their first line. Okay. You don't wait for a person to have a failed rehabilitation process. Cause at that point, many patterns are already developed. Get me in there immediately. Okay. And so what I did was I started studying the way that people rehabilitate and I came up with five different um, stages that people go through in their injury, injury rehabilitation. And I did an entire course on this on my, um, my video platform. Um, and we just kind of held on to it for a little while. I haven't done much with it, but it's really good. But um, it, the first phase is when somebody gets injured, that's the acute phase, right? So immediately psychologically, what happens is you have a loss of injury, I mean, a loss of playing time, a loss of function, and you have a, a sudden burst of, oh my God, what the hell just happened to me? I went from being this highly functioning athlete to now somebody's going to go in and replace me. And my identity was tied up in that sport and Ooh. I was fully functioning. Now I'm not. I've got a lot of pain, but during that time, you get a lot of social support, right? Everybody's coming to check on you. So let's take, a, let's take an example of a young female who tears their ACL playing soccer. Very common, by the way, right? Um, and during a collegiate year, you'll probably have three or four ACL tears just because the female knee is more apt to have an ACL tear than the men's knee, okay? So all of a sudden now they're playing and they're playing as a defender and boom, they slide in there. They hear the pop. Now they're in pain. They got to go through the surgery. They have the surgery. And that's when mom or dad is coming to stay with you. Every player's coming to check on you. It sucks because you know the team is moving on without you, but everybody's still checking on you, right? And so you're also having to deal with pain management. You're having to deal with ultimate loss of function. Okay. So you move into pretty close after that. Then you move into what I call the limited ADLs, the limited activities of daily living. 
if you've ever had an ACL injury or which I have not thankfully knock on wood, but I had my hip replaced three and a half years ago. And when you're immediately post-surgery and you're still somewhat limited, sleeping sucks. Okay. You can't sleep. You can't get comfortable. You're still managing your pain to get up and go to the bathroom. You're having to really think about it. You're like, do I really want to go right now? Or do I need to go a little bit later? Oh, I got to get a shower. Well, that's a big, I mean, a shower is a big, that that's, that's a lot of work. You know, going to class for a college athlete is really difficult. And now you remember the team has moved on. They're traveling without you. Okay. Mm-hmm. They, somebody slid into your role. So you see this pretty strong hit of, um, you know, loss of identity, you know, particularly professional in college and even high school athletes. We have a lot of identity tied up in our, in our sport, right? We wear our gear and proudly, right? We, you know, I did it all through college, right? I wanted to wear LSU baseball shirts, the way you get chicks, right? Um, and <laughs> and so, yeah, so you do that, right? You want, you, you want to show off, you're part of a, it was our fraternity, right? It was what you wanted to be connected with. Men and women do the same thing. Okay, all of a sudden now, you're the injured one. Your identity switched from being highly functioning, highly skilled to being behind. And in your mind, you know how far you have to go. You have so much you have to make up for. You have a variety of things that you need to do, okay? So the social support starts pulling away. Now you're in the pain management. You're really not sleeping well. So you've got to watch for depression. You've got to watch for depressed mood, anxiety, not sleeping. Pain management becomes an issue there because the early pain management is different than the pain management. When you're doing rehabilitation, Uh, you're doing more like wound care and stuff like that. Then you move into the next phase, which is um, just limited because all of a sudden they take off that brace and you can have a, you can sleep at night or it moves. Okay. You can go to the store and you don't have to wear your brace and you can walk to class. You can't do anything, but you look normal. Okay. But you still can't function, but at least you can get some sleep. You can take a shower, you can get up and you can sit on the toilet. I mean, I know those sound crazy, but for athletes that are really injured, those are dramatic moments. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and I know it sounds funny. I don't know. I'll self-disclose, but you know, when I had my hip surgery, you can't squat too far. You got to sit, <laughs> sit on a toilet thing and you're taking pain meds and you know, it, it's, it's awful. I mean, it's just, you feel so vulnerable. Okay. Yep. And as athletes, we don't like to feel vulnerable, especially that way. So in the limited phase, you feel better. And you get a little burst of energy, but now you're going to remember. If you have a traumatic injury, how long you are from playing. So you feel pretty good for a while. And now your rehabilitation is moving more towards, you know, basic function, basic swelling, you know, pathology and physiology of the knee or the ankle or the shoulder that you're working on. The fourth phase is the active rehabilitation. And when a player starts getting to move again, they get this burst and this really good feeling of excitement. And they see early gains. Those early gains only last so long. They're still making gains, but they're not making gains like they thought they would. You know, we think it should be linear, but it's really, you know, it's not. And so players during the rehabilitation phase, which could be really long, can get really down and frustrated. And I had a a player who was going through this um, at Alabama, and it's a great guy. He plays in the NFL now, and it's just a superb kid, and he had had an ACL injury. And, um, you know, we were showing him all the velocity data and all the speed data that he had, and he was he was so much stronger and faster than he was before the ACL injury. But someone in his family had talked to a, um, um, a scout and the scout had made a comment that he's just probably not going to be the same after his ACL. Right. Wow. And the scout was completely out of his place. Okay. Had no business having that conversation. Um, and, and it was really an offhanded comment that just probably got made bigger than it really was. And so we kept pre- presenting him data, presenting him data, presenting him data, presenting him data. And then, you know, he goes into an inner squad and he's favoring his knee 
all right, because his rehabilitation was going on. He had X number of plays. And, you know, we finally got him into a spot. And, and, and it's in the rehabilitation. We manage these ups and downs and some of this depression. And then he's cleared to play. So now the first inner squad he's playing is a cleared player. He loses the hustle award. He gets a, a knock on the wall for not hustling. He had like 12 off plays. The guy had never had more than one in an inner squad ever. Okay. This guy was brilliant as energy and they had 12. And he was so angry because he's like, don't they understand I'm coming back from a knee problem, right? Well, coaches here return to play like return to full function. Yeah. But there's multiple phases of return to play. When a player's first going out, they don't know what their capacity to compete is. So they're still testing the joint, testing the injury to see how it plays in that chaotic environment. <clears throat> That's what happened to him in that first inner squad. He was playing, but every time he'd roll over and get hit, he would feel his knee. Okay. He didn't want to overdo it. Well, it got, he got him in trouble. Now, the coaches knew what they were doing. Somehow, we had all probably talked about how we needed to motivate him, and he responded beautifully. Okay, the next one, he had none. We, he had to believe. But we go into the first week of the season in his return to play, and there's three phases of return to play, which is, you know, you got to deal with the injury and the chaos. You got to start playing without looking at the knee or the injury, and then you got to full, you know, you got to get back in shape and play great. Okay. And he, call, he calls, I walk in the locker room one day, and and he's sitting on the table, and he's like, Doc, Doc. He goes, I'm ready. It was game week, okay? And I had told him the week before game week he was going to have a worsening of symptoms. He did because he's testing it all the time, right? And I said, look, and I just tell him ahead of time, this is where the bump is going to come. This is what we're going to go through. This is what you're going to feel. Nailed it. And he was right. And, and he comes up, and, he, and it was Monday night. He goes to dinner with his girlfriend. And he's sitting at a table. And he cranks his, you know, he's got his foot there. And he, he got up after dinner and realized, you know, I had my foot underneath my table the entire time and it didn't hurt my knee. I'm ready to go. Mm. Had nothing to do with all the velocity data, the strength yeah. data, the flexibility data. The fact that he could go to dinner and put his, knee, his leg under his chair, that many was ready to go. And he plays in the NFL now and he's very successful. Point is, is that there is such a psychology, and I'm very fortunate at Alabama that the athletic trainers involve me immediately when somebody's injured. The orthopedic surgeons from Andrews, Andrews Sports Medicine, Lyle Kane, Norman Waldrop, those guys, immediately. Somebody has an ACL, they come in, they may, get, be, they may be coming back to Alabama two days after their injury, their surgery, and they're seeing me on the third day. Because we want to understand what, how they cope. We want to understand who their social support is. We want to understand their expectations. We want to understand, and we have to educate the coaches because there's going to be a lot of ups and downs that happen during a course of a rehabilitative process. But mentally we got to help the coaches understand how to communicate with them at that time. I don't want players ostracized from the team. Yeah. Many players will look at injured players, players and almost look at them in a superstitious way. So I want the player who's injured to be in the film room. I want them to be working as essentially if once the medicine clears their head. Okay. Um, I want them to be in there helping break down film and be a secondary coach. I want them to train the younger players. I want them, if they're a younger player, I want them to become a shadow of an older player. Use the time to find a different angle. And one of the things I do with every single one of them is I have them read the book, The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. Um, they have the time now because they're injured. And I want them to understand that this is a period of time where it's an obstacle. And an injury has the opportunity to develop or define you. I want it to develop us. Injuries are going to happen in the course of sports. We're never prepared for them until we have to experience them. But sometimes we lose function. That was me. 
Sometimes we can perform well after we lose function. That was me. And sometimes we had our shot and the game got us and we never get back. That may be your, your friend. He may get something back. But what we do is we can't continue to try to find our old self. That's where we get in trouble because one, we're not as good of, a, we don't have that good of a memory of what our old self really was. We only tend to anchor into the positive experiences and we tend to ignore the develop and the struggles that got us there. And so when we see struggle now, we see it as a sign that we're falling short of this unrealistic, um, uh, you know, really, it's, it's what I call suckville, which is the space between what our reality is and what our perceived, uh, what we believe we should be. Okay. It's not our expectations. It's just what we believe is our ideal performances. That space in between is Suckville. And so athletes that are injured and athletes that perform at every level go through Suckville, but that's, you get my point. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously you're in this phenomenal team. So if you're at Alabama and you get an injury or any of these other top programs that you work at PGA tour as well, you know, the teams around them, wrist injuries, et cetera, back injuries, they have phenomenal um, support and resources around them, people like yourself, to manage them through this process. Now, if you're a father of two and you're playing amateur soccer and you get injured and you've still got to go to work, you can't play soccer anymore, it's, it's a different scenario. Unless you're extremely wealthy and you have the best health access to the most amazing healthcare or you're willing to invest massively to get a team like that around you you're probably not going to have access to all this expertise so what advice for people that aren't playing elite sports but maybe go through this what advice could you could you give to them first thing is maintain a journal of your progress okay yeah um and take take notes every day you know one of the reasons is i never want our emotion to be the determinant or or the snapshot of our perspective okay okay um emotion is way way too um it's it, it it's too biased okay mm-hmm. you do 90 thing 90 percent of the things great you 10 percent of the areas you struggle at now you're pissed off and you you're chasing that Okay. And you're so frustrated with that one, but you forget the fact that 90 or 95% of the stuff's really good. Um, and so a journal is really, really important and to, to maintain progress and show progress. Second is, um, you know, I think you, you have to look at what you're willing to make sacrifices for. Okay. So let's say, let's say today, you know, I was, let's say if I was out playing basketball, and I tore my Achilles, very common on fat old guys that are playing basketball, okay? <laughs> so I'm out there playing basketball. I got to really look at it and say, I love to play basketball, um, but is this sacrifice worth not being able to hang out with my kids? And Well, now I've got to have the surgery and all that. I need to get back to being a functioning dad before I'm a functioning basketball player. Yeah. Okay. And I, I need to be honest with myself there. I, I, it doesn't need to be personal. It doesn't need to be this big, you know, raw, raw thing. It just have to be take a step back and look at it and say, what is the most important thing that I need to do with the things I'm doing right now? Okay, yeah, that's fine. Um, and then, you know, I think the other stuff there is I'm a very big believer in finding me time. If you want to call it mindfulness, wonderful. If you want to call it relaxation, great. If you want to call it visualization, great. There's a reason I don't teach all three of them. What I do is I, I, I'm not a mindfulness coach. I'm not a visualization coach. What I believe is tell me what you do to reconnect to you. Um, some people are scripture readers. I know you like to exercise. That is probably as yeah. meditative for you as anything else. Yeah. You know, um, 
our colleague Rob Bell loves to run. I bet that he, you know, his reconnection there is great. Um, You know, I, I think some people like to read. All I want us to do is have 15 to 30 minutes a day where we turn inward and we learn to be aware of who we are. We learn to become a part of who we are and we understand the process of which we're going through. Um, and, and I think the beauty of that process is that journey um, is, is where we learn a lot about ourselves, okay? And, and as we go into that and as we experience that process, the, the thing that I want people to understand is, is you're listening to this is whenever we're going through challenges, our brain and our mind and everything are conditioned to being on alert. They're conditioned to being in drama. They're pretty sh- you know, they're conditioned to be in Suckville where all of a sudden our hair's on fire and everything's wrong. And if we can learn to sit in it and ride the waves versus, and, and to surf them instead of fighting the waves of pain and frustration and anxiety in our life and stress, we can get really good, right? We, we react so fast. There are two types of people in our world. There's reactors and there's responders. Reactors see stress on the horizon and they panic and all they want to do is get out of the stress because it's about self-preservation responders look at the stress on the horizon and know what they're going to have to wear it. Okay. Know it's going to suck. Know it's going to be hard, but they're going to use it to make themselves better. That's what I want people to understand in going through this process is, you know, whatever happens, whatever struggle, and look, we can call it injury. We can call it losing a job. We can, we're in COVID right now. Right. And people are, are rightfully freaking out about loss of income, loss of process, loss of, of reality. It's the same process of loss of injury, right? There's a grief aspect to it of grieving for what we think we should have had versus what we have. Mm. And we have to respond to it, which is, all right, look, I mean, you know, one of the things I challenged my coaches when COVID hit, this is the greatest time for you to reinvest in you and start learning because you don't have a demand of going to the course. The, you don't have a demand to go into the ball field. You don't have a, to the court. Turn inward and start learning. Develop you. Grow. Some did. Some didn't. Okay? Um, and, you know, it's like what do you do every single day to escape the chaos of the day? There's drama and chaos all, chaos all around us all the time. Yeah. Okay? It doesn't go anywhere. It's always there. There are some days where the volume's a little louder. Okay. There are some days where it seems like we're focused and we really don't hear it. It's like you and I could go have this, we could do this podcast at a Starbucks. You and I could have a wonderful conversation despite the fact that 15 people around us are having conversations. And there's other days where we hear every conversation that's happening. We just have to learn to go. Today is one of those days where I'm struggling to pay attention, not God, why I always struggle to pay attention. It's some days I struggle. Some days I don't. That's okay. <laughs> I love it. I, it. What I love about that, Doc, it's I can picture people who are going to listen to this podcast who are going through something that they don't want to go through, and that's actionable. Something that they can tangibly do, get a journal, write it down, give themselves that 15 to 30 minutes. It's something actionable that's going to have a, a positive impact on on their life. I think that was just a a phenomenal answer. Can I add one more thing to that? Yeah, absolutely. Here, here are the three principles of my life that I, I have all my athletes understand. One, life's not fair. Okay. Yep. Um, there are people <laughs> out there who have a silver spoon crammed so far up their butt that they can't fail. Um, there are players who get special breaks. There are players who get special calls. Okay. Yep. Michael Jordan had every call go his way. He earned it, but he did. He had a special break. 
Um, there are players who have bad breaks. There are players who get screwed over by bad coaching. Okay. Life's not fair. Um, you have to play the hand you're dealt. Yep. Number two, we're all running different races. Okay. Not everybody, we, we all don't have the same start line. We don't have the same finish line and we all may be running the race for a different reason. Okay. You know, we're out there competing and think everybody's out there to win a tournament. Um, you know, if you're out there on the golf and some people may be out there because it gets them out of a home that they're not real happy with, you know, you're on a college team and you know, some, some players want to play pro everyone says they want to turn professionally, but some people don't, some people want to do it because they want to get a degree and they may be the first or second person in their home mm. to ever get a degree. And, and this is how they do it. Some people may be doing it because they want the approval of their parents. Right. Um, some other people are doing it because people told them through their entire life, they can't do it. Um, everybody's running a different race. There's a different purpose. Um, hard work does not always equal success. Okay. Um, hard work is not a, is not a guarantee for success. There are a lot of people who work hard, who succeed. There are a lot of people who work hard, who don't succeed. And there are a lot of people who cut corners and get away with it. Yeah. So you work hard to invest in you. Okay. You work hard for that reason. Um, and, and I think the the last most important thing is, is every experience we have in our life, everything that we do in our life, every experience we have in our life is a learning opportunity. If you understand those things, we're okay in life. We can, we can succeed. Okay. It's when we try to think that everything is the same for everybody. Yeah. It's just not. Okay. Awesome. Sorry. I'm just writing those down for my yeah. own personal development. <laughs> no, I, no I, I love that. And I would love to know how, you know, we're talking a little bit there. Well, we, we went from injury recovery and we, and we built and we built. How does that process differ if an athlete is struggling? Um, or, and that might not just be limited to the, you know, um, athletic field. That might be limited to their personal life or um, an academic struggle or maybe it could even be related to a musician and they're struggling. So there's no injury. We're not talking about recovering from an injury. We're talking about, I love this. This is my passion or this is where I like to perform or this is what I like to do, but I'm struggling to perform at it right now. I'm struggling to get the best out of myself. Is the injury recovery process similar? Different? Well, that goes, that goes back to my concept of Suckville, right? That, I mean, yeah. you're probably the same way. Very few people come to, come to me because everything is great. Okay. Most people come to me because there's something painful going on in what they're going through in their life. Okay. Something ain't right. They're putting in everything and they can't understand why their performance is not resulting in what they needed to, to result in. Um, and, and most of the time what it is, is their expectations are too high. Okay. So, you know, we expect too much. Okay. We expect the work I put in is going to result in some outcome. And all of a sudden I'm gonna have a breakthrough. The angels aren't going to sing y'all. Okay. You're never going to have that breakthrough, breakthrough moment. I don't mean to tell, to break your heart. Um, but you're never going to have that breakthrough moment. All right. Um, it's like finding happiness. You don't all of a sudden walk in life and go, hot damn, I found it. Yeah. Usually happiness is like, Hey, shit's pretty good right now. I'm pretty happy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's what happens. Um, you know, number two, um, you know, when we look at struggle, you know, not only are we not, you know, just going to all of a sudden have this breakthrough moment, but you're never going to reach your potential. 
Okay. I hate, I hate reading when people say, you know, success happens when we reach our potential. So we're going to reach our potential. Now, see what happens is if I win a club championship, now I think I need to win it again. Yeah. yeah. If I, if I win a major now I got to win two, I'm always moving the goalposts. Okay. So the reason I say we never reach our potential is what happens is we anchor into this unrealistic outcome that success and happiness is going to be defined by some level of success. You know, I've, I've worked with major champs. I've worked with players who won FedEx cups. I've worked with um, masters champs. I've worked with all those. They're still hunting, man. They ain't done. Never met a content millionaire. Yeah. All right. Um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is still hunting. Jeff Bezos is still hunting. <laughs> okay. Um, and so they may hunt in different, different playgrounds than us. They're still hunting though. Okay. Nobody, we're, our mind is not built to be content because contentment is a risk. It's a risk of, uh, lack of progress, which means that we're going to be bypassed. So if you think about the survival of the fittest mechanism of evolutionary psychology, um, contentment means we stop. And if we stop, if we stop striving, we stop growing, we stop growing, we stagnate, we stagnate, we die. Okay. Um, if you look at the, the research of people who move into nursing homes and stuff, one of the worst things that they can do is just become stagnant. You wow. got to keep the mind active. Okay. Well, we're, we're living ex ex examples of that. So in, in, in success, our potential is a, it's a seductive mechanism that we all sell and it doesn't exist. Okay. It's like utopia. You know, I think the other thing of, of um, struggle that we do is we're doing things that we think we should do because we heard it could helpful. A couple of my pet peeves in the mental game are be calm. Bullshit. Doesn't exist. Um, you know, every day we compete, there's two things that fire up the mind more than anything else, novelty and uncertainty. Okay. We live in an uncertain environment competing in a novel environment. Okay. Yep. Every game, every time we go out and play golf and tee it up, it's going to be new have no idea. I could have played the course 77,000 times. This will be 77,001. It will be different. It will not follow the same process. Now, imagine going into a tournament in the third round of a PGA championship. That is a hell of a lot more novel than playing at your home course 47. I've learned to, to accommodate and to get more comfortable there, okay, at my home course. But now I've taken the uncertainty where consequences build up higher of a PGA championship uh, a tournament, a tryout, an AJGA, or whatever those. Novelty and uncertainty drive discomfort, okay? They drive the mind crazy. And so, and, and they drive arousal because arousal in the body is nothing more than our mind trying to prepare for that novelty and uncertainty. It's trying to meet the demand. So, you know, a lot of times when I talk about arousal or energy, players go, I didn't feel nervous. I'm like, well, you didn't feel it, okay? But you may not feel the atmosphere changing either, not for mm -hmm. a little while. Okay. But the game, it feels you. And, you know, when under pressure, there's, you know, there's four areas that the, that it impacts us. It impacts us physically and how it changes your swing. And you got to know that you got to know that personally, how does it impact you in your swing? You know, do you swing it longer, shorter, quicker, faster? You know, do you, how do you, what happens to you psychologically? Do you have more negative thoughts? What themes of those negative thoughts are popping in? Negative thoughts are nothing more than a threat detection system for the human brain. Okay. So of course, under novelty and uncertainty, what are you going to have? I can have positive thoughts like, Hey buddy, go walk out in that open field, man. It feels great. Yeah. You get killed. Okay. Yeah, the yeah. negative thought is the enemy's all around us. Well in golf. Yes. I know it's not war, but at the same time, your ego's involved. It feels like war. Okay. 
Um, you got to know how it impacts your decision making. So you got to know, do you get more aggressive or too conservative under pressure? You got to know that you got to get better playing under pressure. And then you got to also manage your resiliency and your grittiness. Those are the four areas. And you got to study how it impacts you every day because pressure, stress, arousal changes your rhythm. It changes your feel and it changes your um, focus levels. Okay. Changes all three of those. So is it, wait, hold on. I just lost it here for a second. Um, it changes your feel, it changes your rhythm, and it changes your, um, I want to say speed. Oh, you lose, yeah, sense of time. Sorry, sense of time. Yeah. And all of those are impacting to your rhythm or to your, your sense of focus, or I'm struggling right now. Um, and so you, you, you got to understand that. Okay, so when people say, well, I didn't feel nervous out there, but I played like crap. Well, let's take a look at ourselves. So when we're struggling, let's be honest with ourselves. So don't try to be calm, accept the arousal. Um, I hate hearing mental coaches teach that the mind doesn't know what don't means. That's the biggest horse shit that's ever been taught in the, in the mental game ever. It, that, that is made up. It was made up by a hypnotherapist many, many years ago. There's no scientific fact to it, but it, it is repeated over and over and over again. I just read an article on sports illustrated that, from a, a psychology guy who said the same thing. I'm like, why do we continue to perpetuate falsities? That's why people make fun of our industry, right? That doesn't happen. What happens is if I say, don't hit it in the water, you remember what the two biggest issues are novelty and uncertainty. Yep. The water has a certainty associated with it, it has consequence. Yep. So our mind attaches to consequence and goes, Oh crap, don't hit it over there. Well, what do you think it's going to do to our focus? It's going to grab it, okay? But what happens if you stood on a tee, let's say 18 at Sawgrass, okay? You got water all down the left. You got rough down on the right. If you said, oh, no kidding, I don't want to hit it left. I didn't come up here to hit the ball in the water. If I do, I'll deal with it, okay? Yeah, okay. Where do I want to go? So in other words, you acknowledge it. Then you refocus on where you want it to go. Now what you've done is you just said the water is a risk. We know that. I can't act like it's not there. I can't, you know, don't look at the water. Give me a break. All that's doing is taking your focus and your attention. I'd rather a player to look up and go, you know, talking to their caddy. Okay, there's water all down the left. I'd rather them go ahead and tell me that. There's water all down the left. Cool. We all know it's there. Yeah. Right? Okay. So that, that's one of the things that struggles. People do things that they think they've been told to do. Like, you know, Ben Hogan hit 10,000 balls a day. Yeah, Ben Hogan <laughs> played in the 30s, okay, or 40s or 50s, whenever he Don't played. get me started on that one. I mean, okay. Here, it's like in baseball, we don't study and break down every movement of Babe Ruth. Okay. Babe Ruth was a brilliant hitter back then. And yes, he faced guys that threw hard and he played great and whatever. It's a different era. Um, you know, when I see Brooks Kepko walk out there, he looks like a baseball player playing golf. Yeah. He is athletic as hell. Okay. He is a different type of athlete. The golf course, does that diminish what Ben Hogan did? Absolutely not. Brilliant to win where you are. It's not easier to win now. It's not easier to win back then. It's always hard to win. The yeah. best win where they are, but win where you are, learn, respect, study, appreciate, learn from history. Don't, don't blow it up. Learn from it. Go, man, Hogan, you know, he had an era, he had an aura about him in his era. People were intimidated by him because he had people believing that he just outworked everyone. Well, so did Tiger. Tiger changed the way that people trained. Okay. Yeah. Well, so did Brooks. 
So did Dustin. So did Rory. Yeah. So did, you know, and now we're going to see players that are going to, you know, change that. And now we're going to see the next generation and we're, we're going to see the next generation. It's a constant evolution. So, you know, think about like, be you understand your psychological fingerprint and understand who you are. You and I are different. And you come from England, right? That's where you're from. Yeah. 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 Um, you're going to have different background than me. Yeah. Okay. I grew up, my dad was in the military. We moved all the time. So I always had to, I always played on the suckiest baseball teams because we <laughs> moved all the time. My dad was a former college catcher. He believed in equal play for everybody on the team until we got to the postseason when we got into all-stars because he wanted everyone to be developed. So we'd always play the legacy team, right? There's always one team in the league that's, you know, built to win it, right? Yeah. At eight. Okay. Um, <laughs> and they're all posting their ring pictures on Instagram now. Okay. It doesn't matter. I, okay. Yeah, nah. Uh, my dad, he, you know, we had kids that played second base that, I mean, it was the first year they ever played baseball was in ninth grade. Okay. They were drummers. My dad was a college, he, he played the drums through college. So he, I can remember him talking to that kid every day about drumming. He taught him how to play baseball. That's yeah. awesome. Okay. I'm so thankful for that. And so, but when we got to the postseason, then we, we got after it. Okay. But I had to learn how to play on a sucky team. Yeah. And you got to learn to play where you are. I mean, parents that are calling me, you know, and I'm sure you get the same thing. Oh my God, here we go. It's another double bogey. It's like, it's hard out there. Parents, the game is hard. Teach them how to deal with it. Uh, parents. You get me on a roll. Sorry. <laughs> Not if um, I keep going. Fly away. Parents. I got a couple rules and I was a parent of high school golfers, right? And I probably violated them too. <laughs> the last thing to do is when your player f signs their scorecard is automatically do a roll call through the round and identify, hey, w w what were you thinking on that chip on eight? I mean, hell, didn't we talk about not to hit it in the bunker? That'd be like you working all day, getting on Georgia 400, driving home, coming home, your fiance telling you, what were you thinking at 9-12 this morning? You're like, what the hell are you talking about? Okay, it's chaos out there. It's war. Yeah. It's a mental warfare, Okay. Allow them to decompress. And as parents, you can decompress too. What I always would do, tell my daughter, I loved your fight on eight today. Go sign your scorecard. Go get lunch. Parents, don't pick up your kid's bag. First of all, don't carry your kid's bag. Don't carry their shoes. Don't go get their range balls. Let them go to the range. Stand in the back. If they call you over, go up there. If they don't, let them deal with it. Okay. Let the baseball parents don't carry their bat bag when they're in high school. Don't pack their snacks. They're, let them learn. If they forget their snack, they don't eat. It's accountability. Yeah. But the thing about eating is I, I see it. You see it. I know you see it because you do a lot more work with juniors than I do. God bless you. But <laughs> I can guarantee you that there are juniors that play bad in a tournament. They're in the car as soon as possible. As soon as they've signed their scorecard, they're calling you, right? And they're giving you the rundown. You know what they should do? They should sit at when COVID's over and we're allowed to be humans again. They should go sit and get their box lunch and sit at the table with all the other players and don't pout. Okay? Agreed and don't that. make excuses. Sit down and eat lunch. And let's say, Ian, I go out there and I shoot 89 today. You shoot 68. I should be able to sit down and go, dude, you played like a boss today. Yeah, yeah. And, him go, and you go, Brett, what happened to you, man? 89? Dude, I don't know. 
You ever have one of those days where you just pee on your leg when you go take a, you know, you go take a leak and you just pee in your pants. That's what happened to me, dude. It was everything I tried. It just snowballed. Now it's hard to do that. But do you think you who shot 68 is really going to remember I shot 89? You're going to remember if I was a jerk or not. Okay. Yes. You're going to remember if I couldn't handle the fact that you won and I, I was, I mean, learn from the Rickies and the Justins and the Jordans that when one of them wins, they're there. Bubba, who I've spent a lot of time with. You sit there and you, you can sit there and watch them. They are genuinely excited for somebody, even in yeah. their own disappointment. Okay. Yeah. People remember that versus the jerk who walks off the field and their mom and dad are in the car and they're driving out and they're trying to find the near. Look, sometimes we have bad, sometimes we have bad tournaments. Sometimes we have bad weeks. Okay. Sometimes we have bad months and our tour players, sometimes they have bad seasons. I mean, I, I hate to say it. I mean, I'm looking at the FedEx list right now. Thankfully, they're all going to be pulled forward. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, you know, because it was a shortened season. Some players didn't play good. There's going to be kids on the outside. Sometimes we suck. Okay. The game is so hard that sometimes it takes a couple bounces to all of a sudden cascade. Show me that you can handle that. Show me that you can manage that. Show me how you can move through it. And if you can handle the struggle, shoot. Well, that's anything. Yeah, I love that because it's like you said the game and it's almost as you're saying those things, I'm thinking about my life, right? I, I, I play golf. I'm nowhere near as good as any of the people that I coach. Yeah. But I like to play. I'll, I'll tee it up with them. And now and again, I can, I can make a few birdies. But you're, you're talking, and I'm not looking at that from a, a golf perspective. That just, my imagination started to run with, okay, what am I doing in my life? And everything that you've just said, I've been applying like pictures. Okay, yeah, am I trying to move too fast? Am I critiquing myself? Am I accepting that this is going to, so come on. And you know, I, I think that everything you've said there, even though we wrapped it up in golf, it's so applicable. Um, it's so applicable to life. And that's what I love about coaching juniors that, yeah, I'm coaching golf or the mental game of golf, or I'm teaching them how to practice, whatever it might be. But it's just a foundation to then be able to apply those learnings uh, into life. Um, well, you know, he, one of the things I want all my players to be is I want them to be, I want them to be purposeful over protective, okay, in life. Yeah. But I'm not. I've, I've struggled with anxiety my entire life. I mean, like clinical anxiety, okay? That's why I don't do clinical work anymore. Um, because I couldn't turn off on a Friday night. I'd worry about my patients all weekend. Wow. Like, you know. I worry every day. I mean, I laugh, but I mean, my wife will tell you if somebody, if a player, one of my tour players texts me and says, Hey, let's chat tomorrow. The first thought I have is that they're going to fire me. Oh my, it's, yeah. It's funny you say that. I get the exact same. (laughs) Yeah. And, and I'm confident and you know, I've, I've, I've gotten to a point where, you know, before I go out on tour, I get a really big pit in my stomach. Um, I, I worry. I know I'm good at what I do. I don't know if I'm good for my players. I mean, I seriously, I mean, those are the thoughts that are in my head. Yeah. And you know, there are days I sit there and I'm like, just give them everything you freaking got. Yeah. 
if it's good enough, it's good enough. I, the first time I ever went on tour, it was at the Atlanta athletic club. I told you with Graham McDowell, I go to his house and I meet with him. And of course I'm a fan and I'm like starstruck. Right. And he's staying with Ian Poulter, who I'm, I'm a big fan of. I, I love Ian to death. Yeah. And, and, um, he, he's a tremendous family man and there's a lot of good. I know a lot of people who listen to this see him on social media, but, um, you know, Ian, Ian has a heart, a, a great heart. And I love his, commitment to his family and that's just some of the conversations that he's not a client of mine by any means he probably doesn't even know my name he just knows i've done a lot of practice rounds with graham and he'll be like hey big guy what's up you know probably that's probably what he knows me by right and so two days later we're out there and we're doing a practice round with him and rory and i'm sitting there walking off the fairway off the tee box and i don't remember what hole it was and and i and and i text my wife and i'm like the hell am i doing here I've, i've got the last two u.s open champs in my group okay and, you know, I've gone through the thing of, are you their friend? Are you trying to know all the inside jokes? I can't, I don't know all the inside jokes. Okay. I don't yeah. know all the inside jokes to the coaches. And I've had to just get to a spot where I'm not out there trying to get business. Um, I'm out there doing the best job I can. Yeah. Okay? I've never gotten business by handing out a business card. I've never handed out a business card on the PGA tour. I've never told anybody I could help them. Okay. If people come to me, I'll say, we'll chat. Okay. Let's, let me figure it out. And I've referred people away from me. Um, and I've gotten to a spot where I had way too many players and now I'm in a pretty good number. I mean, I would take certain players if they came to me, but you know, um, you know, but I remember my wife texted me back and said, just give them all. It's all you got because just don't have any regret. And that doesn't mean that I need to tell them what I know. Um, you know, there are players who will fire me and then they'll come back, but every player who's ever fired me, um, and, and I've got plenty of them. Um, they'll, I'll always search them out on the PGA tour. I'll always go up to them on the range, give them a big hug, tell them I'm still the captain of their fan club. They ever need me to please call me that it's that I got to a spot. We are brought into people's life to learn something. I learned from them. They learned from me. When we got to the end of it, we moved on. I, I, not, I, I don't anticipate to knock on wood. I don't anticipate to have any of my clients for 20 years. Okay. You know, players will call me and say, Hey, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I read this book and, and there was like, yeah, you remember we talked about that about two years ago. And there's a part of me uh, selfishly that wants to go idiot. Why didn't you hear me on that? Right. <laughs> but instead I'm like, maybe they're now ready to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that they heard it from a friend or their pastor, or I want to be a professional. And, and, you know, 90% of the interactions I've had with my players have been extremely well. I've been chewed out. I've been yelled at. I've been, you know, challenged. But I don't work for those players anymore. And I had a conversation with the PGA this week, and I had a, one of the coaches and I were talking, and he said, you know, how's business? The business is great. I said, you know, I've cut back on my players. I've play, as players have left, I've not actively searched to add on. Okay. I've taken who's come and I've let them go and whatever. And he said, yeah, he said, I did the same thing. And this is a very established coach. Um, who's been out there for 20 years. And I said, you know, what did you learn by doing that? He said, the anxiety is just not worth it. Wow. You you, as a coach, as you know, you put so much of your heart and soul into people and and, you know, players will sit there and, and they may not know our value. Okay. I've also studied the statistics and when players leave me, what happens to them? I'm still waiting on the one to get better. Yeah. So um, I don't mean that's me. I just, it's a, I'm an accountability. That's all I am. And if they can get something from me, 
awesome, but I learn more from them than they learn from me. And, and I want to, I want to be a part of that in my learning. I don't know what five, 10 years from now, I don't know if I'll still be coaching golf five or 10 years from now. I don't know. Who knows? I mean, maybe they'll come up with something that all of a sudden people won't need me or you. And, and there's a new app that all of a sudden people are <laughs> dominating life. I mean, who knows? You never know in this world, right? Hopefully we, we're, we're the people who invent that then. Cause that, <laughs> that would be great. I mean, I love it. I, you know, it's I look at, not, it's probably not going to happen. You know, I did a podcast with Laura Rutledge. You know who Laura Rutledge is? No, I do not. Okay. So she, she lives in the, she lives in Birmingham. She's a, she started off as a sideline reporter for the sec and then, you know, she did a lot of baseball games and stuff like that. And she moved up to football and then she was the SEC, um, SEC network host. And now she's going to be hosting an NFL countdown show and whatever. She has had a meteoric rise in ESPN because she's so good. And I started off the podcast and I said, I'm going to give you a compliment, but I don't want you to take it the wrong way. You make it look so easy, like it's natural, but I know it's not. Because I said, I watch you do it and I think, God, it must be that cool just to have a stress-free job where you just show up and you talk yeah. sports, right? And I said, but I know that's not true. So I said, I'm saying that out of giving you a, the best compliment that I could ever give you. And she was like, you know what? I'm glad you asked me that question because people think I just show up, put on my makeup and I go. She goes, there's nine and 10 hours before every show that yeah. I'm crammed in my hotel room studying every statistic and segue that I possibly can. Yeah. And and I think that we forget in everything, whether it's performance, coaching, teaching, leading, whatever, that there is an anxiety element that comes to it. And it's hard to be that exposed and that vulnerable. And I've lived it my entire life. So have you. Yeah. Um, and it's hard. I mean, there are times that I get on an airplane and I'm thinking, I have royally screwed up my players for this week. And then they go out and they shoot, they get a top five. I'm like, I, I, I can't even, I can't. And that's why when people ask like, who do you think is going to win this week? I mean, I thought Colin Markawa had a great chance because he's a ball striker. Yeah. Um, but other than that, hell, I don't know. I mean, you know, if you look at guys on Tuesday, they look great. Yeah. So let, let, let me ask you this, Doc. Final question, uh, and then we'll wrap up. I'm, I'm listening to everything you say. You're, a, you're, you're very, very successful in your career. Um, very, very confident guy. Phenomenal speaker on stage. Um, I've, I've seen it many times. Uh, phenomenal on the podcast. And you're saying you suffer from anxiety. Mm -hmm. Myself, people would class me as as confident guy. Um, recently, um, my business that had investors, etc., other people that I worked with, I took it all on myself. And my anxiety was, can I afford to live? Am I going to make enough money? And I was mm -hmm. petrified. And then COVID came and I got through. And then I've had a good I actually did okay through COVID and then I've had a great month. And now my anxiety is this is going to stop. This can't mm -hmm. continue. I can't keep, something's going to go wrong. So you're expressing your anxieties. I'm expressing my anxieties. And a lot of people listening to this podcast will be trying not to be anxious. Like it's almost like it's a dirty word or it's something you've got to get rid of. Is anxiety just a natural part of life? And as soon as we accept that and embrace it, and as you you know, the, the, all the advice that you've given on the podcast, would that actually then help reduce our anxiety? Or if that's not the case, what's the final thing? Just give us your final thoughts on anxiety for the people that, that are listening that you believe can, can really help them. 
Uh, I, I think I think we have a, a crisis in mental health right now. Okay, COVID is going to exacerbate it, and we'll see it for the yeah. next six months to two years. Okay, um, it may be the first time we actually can see parity in treating mental health is not a a a black box instead of it being, we need to bring it out to the front. It, it makes no sense to me that we go to the dentist every six months for preventative uh, dental care. Um, we take our car in every, you know, 4,000 miles to get the oil change, but you get four questions when you go get your annual physical. Yeah, could not okay. agree more. You, you, we should have a, you should be allowed to have a once a year checkup with a mental health provider. Okay. Um, to look at high stress areas and treatment before it becomes the house is on fire. Um, I see about 50% anxiety in the kids that I work with today. Okay. Our kids that are coming up are more anxious than they've ever been. Yeah. You have to understand that anxiety is a secondary impact of arousal and, um, uh, and I won't say angst, but that type of stuff. Um, it, it, it's, it's, I just wrote an ebook that we're going to be releasing in a couple of weeks on stress among coaches. Not only do we have an anxiety crisis, we have a coaching crisis in today's society because we have a lot of risk and not a lot of benefit. Um, the top of the top have benefit, but there's a lot of unknowns out there in mm. coaches that, that, you know, the cancel culture, you know, somebody who doesn't like you, the parents organized to get you thrown out just because you didn't play little Johnny at second um, and, and, and some other stuff. But anxiety to me, the reason is, is that we were not built to work the way we're working. We've adapted over the years, but we have constant stimulation. So it used to be, you know, 300 years ago, we'd go work, we'd work in the fields, we'd work on the farm, we'd work um, in, at the cobbler, whatever it was. We'd go home at night, we'd turn on the light by lighting a candle, we'd have dinner as a family at 5.30 or 6 when it got dark. And by 7.30 or 8, we were asleep, okay? And our stimulation was talking to family. Unfortunately, probably some drinking too, but we would go to sleep and you wake up at four o'clock in the morning and off you'd go again. Now you go on vacation with your smartphone, which you have to have because that's where your boarding pass is, yeah. your airline reservation. Okay. All that stuff's on there, but you also have your emails and your text messages. There was a study that was done many years, about 10 years ago that looked at what's the most emotionally um, restorative week of a vacation. Is it the week before the week of, or the week after? And most people think it's the week of or the week after. It's actually the week before. Because when you're on vacation, you're enjoying it, but you're counting down the clock. And near the end of vacation, you're checking your emails mm. to see what you have to do going back at it. The week after, you're thinking, well, hell, I got six more months until I get another damn break. <laughs> the week before, you're like, all the little hassles don't matter. So stress impacts us because there's two types of stressors. There's minor and major. Major life stress we know causes a lot of angst, and it causes our body to have a massive response to it death of a loved one, loss of a job, a COVID, you know, you going out on your own, massive stress. But it's the minor stressors that build up that cause the biggest problem. Wow. Because we think they're innocuous, but over time, they're cumulative and they build up. So now it's like, hey, I'm running late for appointments. I've got too many things to do in a day. I'm not having time to spend with my family. I'm not exercising. I'm not eating right. Okay, all those little things add up. And it's kind of like a slow leak versus a, a blown tire eventually it wears out every other part of your system. Okay. So if you have one little tire that's out of balance, it wears out the entire other aspects of the car. Okay. A blowout completely stops you in your tracks. Everybody responds to it. That's fine. That sucks. It's the slow leak that causes the wear down. It's kind of like my hip wore down my knees, right? Till mm. I had my, okay. So what we do with stress is we don't have a place to get away. We don't have that recharge moment. 
And anxiety is not necessarily a bad thing. It helps us focus to get through the stressor. Okay. Cortisol, the stress hormone is not a bad thing. In the short term, cortisol is brilliant. It's exactly what it needs to be. Over time, it's a bad thing. Yes. Okay. But in the short term, it's a good thing. It's in the long term that it's not a good thing. So all that, all that being said is the things that we're working on, um, you know, is, is that I think, um, you know, I've, I think people either run hot or they run cold. The people who run hot tend to be anxious. The people who run cold tend to sometimes struggle with motivation or connection. Okay. There's not a right or wrong. And the, the run cold tend to be like, it is what it is. Move on. You're not going to take somebody like you and me and make us cold. There's not. Okay. Because, because you and I, I mean, you're in this industry because you care. It doesn't mean you can't be effective if you ran cold. You just have a different, remember that psychological fingerprint I said before? You yeah. have to learn. And for me, you know, this stress book I wrote, COVID was a tough thing for me too. And it was, you know, we're in, my wife and I, our two daughters have gone to college. One's now living in downtown Atlanta. Um, and she's got her own business. She's absolutely killing it in the world of social media. I mean, she's hundred percent paying for herself at 23 and her, her sweet ass apartment living by herself. I mean, couldn't be prouder of her. My other daughter is 19 as a sophomore in college. My wife and I decided that we're going to build this house. It's, it's an expensive house. It's a house that we've been wanting to build for 15 years, opening up a business. We, I left a very profitable pharmaceutical job in the middle of the economic downturn to open up the mine side. Um, and you know, and, and in the meantime, my dad was in the ICU and ended up passing away about six months later. And yet I needed to bet on myself. I mean, I walked away from a seriously good job. I mean, big time money, but I wanted to bet on myself and, and I believed in myself. And, and I knew when I left, my oldest daughter was a freshman in high school and we didn't have a college fund. We had nothing yeah. because we had kids young and I didn't graduate from my doctorate until I was 30 two, maybe 31, 32. Wow. So, you know, I, I was hustling, right. And we were, you know, hustling as hard as we could. And, and so for me, but that one didn't create anxiety. It, it probably did for my wife because in the middle of the night she'd say, I just don't feel like we have a plan. And I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'd work on plans and I'd get after it. Right. I've got to have a little fire in my ass to go. And that's so anxiety works. The problem is, is when I can't worry and, and there's a colleague of mine who's probably the most brilliant psychologist in anxiety I've ever been around. And his name is Dr. Kevin Chapman. Um, he's based in Louisville, Kentucky. And he's, I think he may be president of the Anxiety Association or whatever. But, um, you know, he, he, he described it perfect to me. He said, worry is when we can't connect to a solution. Mm. Our mind sees worry as a solution, but there's really no end in it. See, if I'm worried about, being late for my appointment with you. I show up early. I took care of that worry, right? I had stress. I showed up early. I solved it and it was over. Fair? Yeah. But if I worry about what you think about me, which I can never know what the answer is, my mind will continue to wow. stay and ruminate on that worry. Yes. And it's worry that causes the anxiety and the problem. And I have tremendous worry because we make mountains out of molehills. Yes. We misinterpret things. You know, a player, you know, this week I had a player and I just couldn't read him all week. Like I couldn't read his body language with me. And, and, you know, there was, I had a couple other clients there than the ones we talked about, but I was like, I couldn't read him. I had a client, you know, so funny. I had a client who very, very high profile client that nobody knows I work with and it's awesome. Okay. 
we'll walk by and we'll just act like we know each other, but we don't acknowledge. And that's the relationship we have. And I mean, he like blew me off this week. And I, in my head, I'm like, what in the hell did I do to piss this dude off? Well, yesterday morning I had a text. Hey doc, we need to have a conversation here real soon about this, this, and this. Now, if he had said we had to have a conversation real soon, I would have automatically started ruminating. Right. Yeah. But the fact that he, and I tell all my players, if you need me, text me for what you want to talk about. So mm. I don't worry because I'll take the first 15 minutes of our conversation thinking, Oh my God, Oh my God, Oh my God. Oh my so God. There's oh, your solution. Tired. You found a solution. Yeah. For Tell me a solution. Some... Tell me what you want me to talk about. So this player that I was obsessively worrying about, right? He's completely good. Right. We make shit up in our head all the time because yeah. we're worried about it. And I think the worry for me helps. It eats at me. My wife, she, she'll look at me and go, you worry about the weirdest things. She didn't think she worries, but she's a perfectionist and she's very organized and detailed. She was a nurse manager, but she runs my business now and or runs our business. And she, she's extremely good at what she does. And I couldn't be where I'm at without her. I mean, she is the reason why we're so successful. And she, but her worry is, you know, as my daughter is my 23 year old who lives in Atlanta by herself, who has Crohn's disease, is her health going to be okay? Right. She is, she'll worry about that, but she'll say, I don't worry about stuff. She'll put it in a box in the closet. To me, I'll carry that damn box around every single day. Yeah. But that's okay. But that helps me connect to my players. That helps me yeah. emotionally. And, and you know, there are days that I'll go to Bama and, and when I go to Bama, I see them in 30 minute spots and I'll have 24 lined up in a row. Okay. Or 26 in a row. Yeah. And that's a long day. That's 13 hours straight yeah. of that. Every player who comes in the door has some angst and every player when they leave the door feels better. The problem is the next player who comes in the door has the same angst as the one that just left. Where does that angst go? It goes on me. Yeah. And I carry it and I wear it. And I'm very empathetic. Um, I feel people, I feel stress. I feel I'm one of, I've just always been that guy that knew that when somebody was upset or am I? you know, or am I really good at it versus, and do I just worry about everything? And I hit 10% of them and think I'm tied in it. The best thing that happens to me is when I go, Oh, it doesn't matter. It's kind of like, you know what? I'm gonna hit the yeah. shot on the green. I'm gonna give it my best. I'll do, you know, what's the worst. If somebody fire, knock on wood, maybe somebody's gonna fire me tonight. But if, if I'm, if somebody's gonna fire me, what do you do? You know what you do? You thank them for their time. You don't burn yeah. any bridges and you go out there and you serve your clients the best that yeah. you can. And you know what? I work, I sit there and worry. Oh, am I going to, I mean, I don't want to be the guy who was really good there for a period of time and had some success and had 12 victories in three years or whatever it was. And then all of a sudden had none because I didn't have any clients because I pissed them all off. Yeah. You know, because my answer to anxiety is to smother them. I'll be too involved and I'll overcoach them versus, you know what? This is what I do. That's awesome. So, I mean, th there we have it, right? For people that are, suffering from anxiety or seeing anxiety in this strong negative light you know you're out there teaching some of the best athletes in the world uh, how to deal with certain situations and ultimately it's, it's giving you anxiety which i think is amazing for people to to hear it, it, well, that alone i believe can can help people understand themselves a bit more or deal with these thoughts that that they're having that maybe they're trying to stop but that are actually perfectly natural 
is just looking for that. Remember, that remember, anxiety, angst, perfectionism are great until they're not. Yeah. You know, people are always like, I don't want to be a perfectionist. Well, it got you to this point. Yeah, they, yeah, great point. Great point. Um, Doc, so this has been amazing. I don't want to take up any more uh, of your time. Uh, I think there's so many uh, knowledge bombs and gems in there for the people that are going to listen to this podcast. But I would love people to be able to uh, check into your podcast. Uh, you, you, you do a great job on social media. There's always some great uh, quotes on there and nuggets on there. Uh, and then also your, your books and, and any other information. Do you want to just throw out some handles and, and things where people can connect with you or contact you? I think the first place to go is obviously my website, brettmccabe.com, and that's spelled B-H-R-E-T-T, McCabe, M-C-C-A-B-E.com. And then from there, you can find all my social media handles, which is at Dr. Brett McCabe. I think the thing that I'm pumped about right now is um, – we started a thing called the catalyst school, which is built for coaches and leaders to be better catalysts in their students and their athletes lives. Um, so we're coaching the coaches right now. Um, and, and we do four times a month we do live training uh, online. And last night we added, and then we add a couple conversations with um, experts during the course of the month. So you may have four to six, um, you know, live calls a month and it's $19 a month. I mean, it's, it's comically cheap. Um, that's the coolest thing we got going on right now. It's called the catalyst If you're a manager of business, if you're a leader, if you're a parent, if you're a, a coach, golf coach, rugby coach, football coach, it doesn't matter. If you want to coach your players for psychologically better positions and help manage yourself and manage the processes of what we do in our lives, that's where we go. And that's what we do. And, and, um, it's four, it's six hours, maybe a month of live training and a platform. Um, and it's awesome. I mean, it, last night we had on uh, Patrick Murphy, who's the head softball coach at the University of Alabama, who's probably the greatest character development coach I've ever been around in my life. And uh, he talked for an hour and 20 minutes just off the cuff about things that he's done and gratitude letters and, you know, wow. why leaders are like eagles. And I mean, and you know, the cool thing about it, Ian, is if you sign up, you get seven days for free. If you sign up today, you get every video that's ever been in there. It's already loaded up for you. Wow, so, that's awesome. I mean, you could do seven days for free, fire me after seven days and get all the content that's in there if you want to do that. But if you think that $20 isn't worth what it takes to be a better coach, 20 bucks a month. Come on. Yeah. It's comical. Yeah. I'll, um, what, what I'll do, Doc, I'll put that in the, in the uh, description, uh, the Please podcast do. description so people can click on it. Uh, anything else before um, I, uh, I let you escape? No, 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 no. I just, I love what you're doing and I love your passion and your excitement and, you know, stop, stop trying to be so fit. I mean, you, you gotta, you gotta allow people like me to, you know, I exercise, I do my Peloton. I did that before we got on this call, but I mean, I'm, I've oh, done how is that? How is the Peloton? You know, I love it. It, yeah. it is great. You know, I was, a, I, okay. 10 years ago, I was a hardcore CrossFitter. Yeah. Um, it was great. I, I got in unbelievable shape. That's when my hips started going out. It wasn't because of CrossFit. It was because I had an underlying hip problem that I just yeah. couldn't, and I got on the bad side of it and then realized I just, I mean, my hip went out. I mean, I was, but I had so much fun doing it. The difference of me was I was never one of those guys um, that would go in and try to get on the leaderboard. Like I didn't care. Yeah. Like, you know, you know, Bob's over there trying to beat me on the grease board. I didn't care. Yeah. There was only one thing I cared about on, which was strength, um, squatting, squatting and deadlifts. Cause I used to do those all the time when I played, I was never okay, fast. Yeah. 
I'm yeah. six foot five, so wall balls are not really good for and burpees. <laughs> no. You know, you don't see you don't see hippopotamuses and, and um, giraffes doing burpees out in the general public. <laughs> That's I mean, true. you know, it, it's a long way down for me and a long way back up. Yeah. Um, so you know, not all the CrossFit is really built from um, um, you know for tall people, but you know, I, I enjoyed those two things, but I enjoyed, I mean, my wife and I did it religiously when we opened our business four days a week. Um, we're building in our new house, we're building a gym in the house and I'll go back to oh, some nice. of the CrossFit style things. Yeah. The reason is, is I realized I, I didn't, we closed our office in COVID just so I could turn, return back home for my own mental health. Um, and, and the nice thing is having a, a gym in the house is, I can, you know, if I have a, an hour break, I can go get a 30 minute Peloton and a 20 minute exercise and then be back yeah, sitting yeah. down in front of my client. Yeah. That's awesome, so, man. So you'd recommend the old, the old Peloton as well. I might, I might, you I've know, never we, done it. I've done spin classes. I find yeah, it very hard. The, it is very hard. The, the platform is absolutely brilliant. Okay. I've heard they're very motivational. Like there's a lot. They're brilliant. Yeah. They're, they're brilliant. I mean, the, the science behind what they're doing to get people to sign into a bike with a lie. I mean, other people can copy it. Okay. They're still Kleenex. They are the best at what they do. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And their 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 um their programming is brilliant. You know, I have my instructors I like, my wife has hers. My wife, we bought them and we bought them a year and a half ago. We bought a bike and we bought a treadmill. The treadmill is absolutely ridiculously good. Now, unfortunately in the rental house we're in because our house is being built, it won't the treadmill wouldn't fit through the doors of the house, so it's sitting in storage. So my wife was finally like, fine, I'll do this stupid bike. I hate it. And she won't miss it now. I mean, that's awesome. she will, yeah, she will rearrange everything she's doing to get home to get on the, the Peloton. And you know, the app is brilliant. I mean, I, I'm not paid by them. I don't get anything <laughs> for them. I pay my 30 bucks a month or whatever it is. I couldn't recommend it enough during this era. Um, because it, it's, you know, I, I've got the app on there. I've got my you know wristbands. I got everything. It, it'll kick your ass. I mean it because you can control your output. So yeah. you get on that thing. You're like, Oh yeah, I'm in shape. And it's like, well, look, crank up the output, crank up the yeah. resistance. And the next thing you know, you're like, I mean, I'm just pouring sweat by the time it's over. It's yeah. just ringing wet. And I'm like, all right. And I, and giving that I have an artificial hip, I can't run. It's not yeah. a good thing to do. And, and so it's a low stress mechanism for me to do it and it's kicking my ass. And so I bet my wife, I'd lose 50 pounds. Um, I was 50 pounds lighter when I opened the office and I put on 50 pounds in the office. Um, and so I, I better, I would lose 50 pounds. One of the things we know from COVID is that if you're overweight, your lungs can't expand on a ventilator. They can't expand. And so one of the best things that we can do in anything that we're going to do in our life is lose weight because of the secondary effect that it has on our body and the overall health and stress of our body. And I can't be a performance coach and feel uncomfortable with myself. And it's helped my anxiety a lot. It's helped me feel a lot better. That's awesome. And and so that's why I did it. And, you know, I'm not doing it because she bet me, but I'm not going to lose to her. (laughs) Well, and transformational leadership right there. Like you just said it, you know, you're, you're, you're you're now saying that and and getting the Peloton. It's, it's an example again to, all the people that you coach, not just from the mental side or how you run your business or how passionate you are now from a, from a fitness side. And like you said earlier in the podcast, there's your solution, right? If you're worried about COVID, it's almost like there's no solution, but then you've gone, okay, Peloton, weight loss, 
this can reduce yeah. my anxiety. This is good for mental health. That's amazing. Well, it, it, you know, if I sleep better, I mean, you know, if I take care of my life, I take care of what I'm doing, I eat better. Look, it, it's not a guarantee, but I know what's not, what is a guarantee is not being in shape, not being fit, not mentally being clear. I mean, I can tell you just from, you know, having done the Peloton the last eight weeks, um, going out and walking on the PGA tour and walking 27, 36 holes, the difference of what I felt was dramatic. Wow. That's amazing. You know? And so, you know, if I'm, if I'm carrying all that extra weight and I'm tired, then I'm probably not coaching my players very well. And so, you know, I think it's just something that we all have to look at, you know, it, when COVID hit, that was just the one thing I wanted to do. I just wanted to do, um, the one thing. There you go. To get one thing better. That was it. And we'll see. Awesome. Well, let's stay in touch. Keep me, uh, Keep me posted on the, uh, on the fitness mission. Um, we'll and obviously, I'm always consuming your content. So, Doc, right. thanks so much for coming on. Uh, a you great it, podcast. And, and thanks for everything that you do, um, you know, not just for your players, but for the, for the industry and for all the other uh, coaches out there. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's an honor, and I appreciate that, my man. Thanks, Doc. Take care. Thank you. You've just taken a step forward to making a positive change in your life. That's right. You're one step closer to leaving frustration, stress, and anxiety behind. This was the Beyond the Mind podcast. Let's apply some positive change into your world. Into your world.